0: And I was listening to a podcast the other day. Their opinion is that cancel culture doesn't really exist. It's a moral panic. And I think there's some truth to that. Like, I think a lot of people are disproportionately worried that they're going to be cancelled when they almost certainly aren't going to be. But then they said, and part of the reason why there's such a moral panic going on was because of me, like John Robson.
1: Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's been a good run lately, hasn't it? Carl Zimmer, David Robson, Richard Dawkins, and now one of my all-time heroes. It's journalist, documentary maker, and podcaster John Ronson. I've been a fan of John's work since I read The Psychopath Test while I was living in Brazil about eight years ago, and I was still an aspiring writer and journalist and was simply blown away by John's writing. He hits the nail on the head in this episode when he explains how he was so worried about boring the reader. It means that his work is just an absolute joy to read every sentence is either funny elucidating or chilling depending on the topic at hand and those things are pretty useful when you're reading a book about psychopaths you want to sometimes laugh and then sometimes feel a bit scared Uh, he's also known for writing so you've been publicly shamed a book about the way we publicly humiliate others for minor transgressions there's a lot of discourse about that today of course but John was ahead of the curve when that book came out in 2015 in his work He often documents his time with extreme figures, including Alex Jones, David Icke, and Islamic militant leader Omar Bakri Muhammad. His other books include Them, Adventures with Extremists, Lost at Sea, The John Ronson Mysteries, and The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was made into a movie starring George Clooney. He co-wrote Frank, another feature film starring Michael Fassbender and Maggie Gyllenhaal. And Maggie's brother, Jake Gyllenhaal, starred in John's acclaimed movie, *Ukja*. I've seen and read all of these things while devouring his podcasts, The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August. Many people see him as the Louis Theroux of books, and they've talked before with one another about a bitter rivalry that they had when they were up and coming which has now sort of subdued and become a a lovely friendship of, of mutual respect with a competitive edge. John comes from Wales and he worked at CBC Radio in Cardiff. His latest podcast is called Things Fell Apart and it is about the beginnings of all of our different culture wars. It's completely unique in that it doesn't pick a side and the genius lies in finding stories of such magnitude and social consequence that somehow escaped mainstream attention. Until now. Each episode takes on a different struggle, whether it be how abortion came to be such a hot topic between tribes, how offence was caused at the dawn of the internet, or where third-wave feminism came from, and how it relates to trans rights. As ever with John, the human is always at the heart of the story. You'll find that on BBC Sounds, so download that app. From next week, the 25th of January, it will be available worldwide. All you Americans, Australians, Europeans, South Africans and people from other places will be able to listen, I mean literally everywhere, to, because it will be on the normal podcast platforms from the 25th of January. So I honestly can't recommend it enough and will remind you next week as well. We talk today about cancel culture, public shaming, the internet and the podcast things fell apart. Thank you so much, John, for making my Christmas, that's when we recorded this, by coming on the show. I hope you will come back in the future sometime as well, as there's so much more I wanted to ask you about. I hope that the Ronson fans listening will subscribe to this podcast. If you like his work, you might like a lot of these episodes. Please do get in touch with me to let me know. You're listening to it. Uh, Andrew Gold underscore OK, Twitter, Instagram. Sorry to my bonus people. This is the third time this month there's been no bonus. It's just very tough to ask these big name people like Dawkins or John Ronson when they've got loads of interviews to do to do some homework and, you know, stay for the bonus questions. But next year, so hopefully in the next couple of months, I'll be doing two episodes a week and you'll get a lot more bonus episodes, I promise, I promise. It's just been a rough patch for bonus episodes. Please do leave me a review on Apple or CastBox or give me a 5 out of 5 on the mobile app for Spotify. A lot of people are saying that's not really working at the moment, maybe it is now. And enjoy listening to the soothing, dulcet tones of John Ronson's voice. I'm so so scared of, you know what, I'm already at ease. It's a funny thing. You have a, a nature about you that puts people at ease. And as I get very, and I know you get yourself quite anxious. I get very anxious doing this, mm-hmm. especially Zoom, because suddenly the person pops up, and sometimes they're scientists and doctors and things, and they're people like uh, Daniel Finkelstein, you know, very serious. And I, I'm so scared. And you came in just like a breath of fresh air, and you, hi, hi, hello, and I'm already relaxed, oh. so thank you for that. Oh, good,
0: even though I actually came in flustered, so you saw me at my very worst. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and all the horrible racist things you said before we started recording.
0: Oh, <laughs> and even that, no, but um, yeah. Do you do you get so you get nervous like for technological reasons? Do you get nervous for social reasons? Because I sometimes like you know I, I I get very nervous before doing an interview, not not being interviewed, weirdly, but. Um, interviewing someone, but it's kind of for reasons of social awkwardness. It's the same feeling of awkwardness that I get on my way to a dinner party on the exceptionally rare occasions that that's
1: happening. <laughs> that I haven't said no exactly, it's exactly that it's also because, and I don't know if you feel this way, there's like there seems to be sort of two kinds of people in the world, and there are sort of jokey, funny, relaxed people, and then there are very serious people, and you probably need both in the world, but those serious people they've I get very stressed talking to them uh, i don't I might say the wrong thing, so, uh, Richard Dawkins or someone like that, I wouldn't want to have them on the show because I'd be so nervous in the lead up to it. Do You know what I mean,
0: yes, yeah, absolutely. I was signed next to Richard Dawkins at an event. And he only signs his name. Um, like, and, and like, he won't say, like, if somebody says, can you make it to Judith? You're he'll like, he'll, he'll like, no, I don't just sign his name. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that his fans get to go home a lot quicker than those of us who want to do great big sprawl, you know, want to like do a great big message each time. So, so I'm very torn between whether, whether that approach is rude or the opposite, actually. Consider
1: it. Yeah, I, I've got. I can expand on that story with Dawkins, just because I I was on a podcast which you might have probably been on at some point called Humanists. I don't know. Um, it's the Humanists podcast. Well,
0: uh, no, no, I've never, never been. Ever been that well, same.
1: I was a, I was a, a guest on there to talk about my documentary stuff, and bef- just before the, the guy who who was interviewing me, uh, he said, "Oh, I've just got sorry, I was late. It was a minute late. I just got off the phone with Dawkins. He was the interview before yours, and he said uh, the thing with Dawkins is very difficult to interview because he does just give. It's almost the same as a signature. He just gives like a one-word answer. He's very to the point, and he said mm. the opposite would be like <laughs> David Bedil, who he had as well, who's also coming on this show, uh, because David Bedil was very much he went back on himself and went back and forward, and he didn't he. He's never sure of what he's saying. And he said that was a nightmare to edit compared to Dawkins. And at the end of that episode, I said, like, so how was that? Was that all right for you? And he said, a bit more of Badil. You're a bit more Baddiel than Dawkins. And I thought, oh, no, he hated it. He hated it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's...
0: Well, as a matter of fact, so I'm in New York and I noticed that David Baddiel was on his way to New York because he was on the Seth Meyers show a couple of days ago. So I messaged him, and because like, I tend to message people when they're passing through town, so I couldn't see some Brits who I used to know. And so I messaged him. Um, and yesterday, me and David Baddiel went to the uh, matinee of, of jagged little Pill, the um, Alanis Morissette jukebox musical on Broadway. Oh, <laughs> yeah! How and was when it? I told my, I, I, I liked it very much. I found it very moving. When I told my wife <laughs> I was doing it, she said, uh, "Are you dating David Badil? <laughs> <laughs> there was, was a slight oddness to it. These two old blokes sitting <laughs> in a musical that's really geared towards young women.
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, love made, I love that. I love that. Um, album because I'm a very bitter person I think and I try not to be but there's a lot of bitterness and resentment and stuff and that album I can't think of a more bitter album is, is there I mean literally the name Jagged Little Pill
0: yeah it's a very well just like you know Sondheim or Candra and Ebb you know the great thing about Broadway musicals is how they can go to very dark serious places <laughs> I, I very much love that and Jagged Little Pill just does that it goes to some really dark places it's written by Diablo Cody who's you know who wrote Juno um, oh, yeah. Yes, if anyone's on Broadway, I mean, it's very uh, social justicey. So if, if, if one is, um, if, if one sort of gets annoyed by social justice messages, then I, I would say still go, because by the end of the show, it, it just expresses itself in a very moving way, I thought.
1: Oh, well, fantastic. Yeah, it can be hard not to get riled up if something has a slightly... And we'll talk about that as we go on, won't we? I mean, that's what everything's about, isn't it? I, well, you know what I'm interested you I don't know if you remember, but I, um, I, well, I'm well, i a huge fan of yours, and, and you don't have to say anything to that, because what do you say to that? But I've seen yeah. f- Frank and or Okja, or the, uh, the, the J- Okja, J- Okja, thank you. Okja. Fantastic. Okja. Uh, I think I said that right. Okja. Okja, like the oak tree. Right, with a J at the end. Hope J, and exactly. and then and then what about Jake's last name?
0: <laughs> you've brought me on the spot. Um, is it, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a it's a soft J. Hang on, which one's a soft J? Is that G or J? Soft must be J. Yeah, it's Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. Let me just try and picture like um, me going up to him and, and introducing <laughs> myself, and then I remember how I said it, and I remember. Um, Hi, you're Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, it was, it, Gyllenhaal. it's was Gyllenhaal. I didn't say Gyllenhaal.
1: That would have felt very wrong. Well, you probably didn't say his last name, did you? Or maybe the first time. Yeah, you must be Jake Gyllenhaal. You must Don't you Jake always Gyllenhaal. address celebrities by their full names? I, I never address anyone by... Anyone's name because I have a, a this fear all the time. Even though I know, obviously, that's that's my dad. I don't want to get the wrong. It's 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 bound mm. to be wrong. It will come out. I'll be thinking dad, and it will come out mum, or I'll be thinking John, mm. it will come out Ron, and I. So I will. I try to avoid actually saying someone's name uh, mm. live. As much as possible.
0: That's, that's very wise. And of course, I didn't address <laughs> at Little by his entire name. That would have been wouldn't
1: odd. I've heard him say, because I looked it up before, like, how do you pronounce his name? And he's been asked on talk shows. And then I think he's tra- throwing a spanner in the works because he says something with a bit of a smile and he goes, it's like or something. You're like, come on. <laughs> so, right. as I was saying, so I've read read the psychopath test, loved it. I diagnosed everyone I know as a psychopath. Um, loved uh, said- all of us, them publicly shamed love it all and i told you i think a few weeks ago my brother never read a book in his life and he started reading the psychopath test and it got him into put books and kindle and stuff so well that's
0: great to hear uh that is (laughs) great to hear i very deliberately wanted to to write you know because the psychopath test you know it it could be a very different sort of read because it's about mental health diagnoses and the vagaries of them when it's good when it's bad if you become a, a Psychopath spotted, Does it turn you a little bit psychopathic uh, <laughs> um, in that sort of looking into the abyss way? Um, and so it's about this kind of serious stuff, but but I very much wanted it to to be a beach read, a, a page turner. So I wanted it to be as kind of exciting and adventurous and twisty turny as possible. So. Um, because I have a short attention span, I think. And, I, and, and so I, I think I write books for people who have short attention spans. Which is a remarkable skill. Well, I worry a lot about, I do worry a lot about boring people. So I make my, you know, one of the biggest parts of my of, of the process of writing for me is, is, is making stuff shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, like if you've got a paragraph and you've looked at it a hundred times and you just can't take out another word... Um, and then you find another word
1: to take out, then that's like the best feeling, I think. <laughs> well, the other part of that, and, and, and I'm glad you say that, because I, I think that um, entertainment and comedy are sometimes sort of overlooked facets of journalism uh, and undervalued. And would you consider yourself, in a sense, uh, along with, I think, Louis Theroux and along with Sasha Baron Cohen as well, um, a humorist? Um. No, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily use that word to
0: describe myself because I think sometimes my stuff is funny. But, um, and there's times when I'm really looking for the joke, like if something's really dark, um, I am very, you know, I'm really looking for the joke. But then other times I don't even think about it. Like if, if, if I'm doing a story which just doesn't lend itself to humour at all, the, the tone of the story to set itself... And I don't wanna force comedy in there. It's always storytelling.
1: It's just people lost in a in a big world. Yeah. Well I love it. And I, I find myself laughing laughing quite a lot. At, at the bits that are supposed to be funny, not you. not, you know. Yeah, I really want to, I mean, I want to be funny. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not sniffy about
0: funniness in, uh, in journalism. I, I just, I, maybe I just don't work quite as hard as I used to maybe in, in looking for the jokes. Sometimes I'm, I'm sort of, I'm more confident with a, with a darker, more emotional thing mm. than maybe I used to be.
1: That's a really interesting point because maybe it does come from, uh, I suppose, anxiety and you feel you have to make someone laugh. As you said, you're scared of boring people and then as you've gotten older, you feel more confident now.
0: Yeah, and and exactly, if you're doing a show and and people aren't laughing, like you're reading something that's not funny, you have no idea whether people are into it or not. You're standing on stage, you can't see their faces because the lights are in your eyes and all you're getting is silence. There's something very um, comforting about, people laughing it's like okay you know I, you know I know I've I know I've got them I've got them in my hand uh, <laughs> that's what I think when I hear the laugh yeah. from the audience yeah. I just I think God, no I don't really think that yeah it's definitely like okay I can I can relax now
1: yeah they've laughed yeah. I'm okay people yeah. like me my therapist will be happy or whatever you know everything's <laughs> they're fine. going they're going with it
0: I don't have a therapist do you have a therapist
1: I I do have a therapist actually. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I I lived in Argentina for oh, seven years, and that is the world capital of therapy. So I was already quite sort of anxious and w- whatever in, in in ways you know similar to how you've described your own anxiety sometimes. And everyone, every single person, at least at least I suppose lower middle class upwards in Argentina has got a therapist. Um, it's just and it's very cheap wow. out there. Yeah, so I started then. Wow. And it's just it's been fantastic to be honest. Well, that's good. I had a
0: therapist for, like, I had a sort of bout of of what was called adjustment disorder about three years ago, uh, which has got to be the the most, the dullest sounding mental disorder. What What Uh, is it? it's a it's a very unengaging name for mental disorder uh it's it's like um it's it's like something that an accountant would do uh, but it's uh, um it's like situation it's it's like fleeting depression it's like situational depression okay. that goes away when you fix the situation that you're in um, uh, interesting yeah and so I got a therapist then and sort of went to see him like two or three times a week um but then when i got sort of better i just didn't bother i just didn't go back yeah
1: yeah well it served a purpose
0: yeah same well that was cbt so it's like okay i just want to roll my sleeves up and fix what's going wrong um but there's certainly you know there's certainly quite a lot to my personality that would warrant visiting a therapist So so maybe i should at some point Again. Well,
1: this is. Here's. A, I didn't think about this before, but just as you said that, I mean, I I feel that way. I, I'm from a, a Jewish background, right? Atheist, as I think you are as well. Mm-hmm. And when you when you described that your personality, the first thing that came to mind was Simon Amstel and David Bedil and Woody Allen and Larry David. Uh, do you how mm-hmm. how in touch are you? Is that any part of your life the 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 Jewishness, or is it just a complete sort of red herring?
0: Oh no! It really is in in that cultural sense. Um, So many of the people I admire are Jewish. Randy Newman—I have been like a massive fan of Randy Newman my whole life. Randy Newman taught me how to write, you know, ambiguity and nuance and double meaning and and so on. Uh, No, many of my heroes are Jewish. I'd say probably the, the majority of my heroes are Jewish. If you take the religion out of it, we certainly connect on a. On a sort of personality level, we have lots of shared traits. Jews, not all, of course, and you know this is a generalisation, but Jews tend not to get drunk. So um, there's there's lots of things, there's lots of weird things that we just all have in common.
1: I didn't know that, and I don't get drunk. Right.
0: I mean, obviously some Jews do get drunk, and there are Jewish alcoholics out there. But but you know the tendency is for Jews not to get drunk. I don't know if it's something about not wanting to be out of control. Um, you know, we that's need to retain a semblance of control. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what? People may listen to this and say that's bullshit. But, but I, anecdotally, I could say over the years, I've noticed that me and my Jewish friends don't get to... I was at, when I got married. um My wife's Scottish, and I can tell you that all the Jews. I mean, the wedding was just on the beach in Nantucket, but when we had like a little party afterwards. Um, you know, the Jews tended to be the ones who were staying sober whereas the, and standing against the wall, whereas the Scots tended to be the ones who were doing like, you know, big dancing and <laughs> letting themselves go. And, um, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we do the chair, the chair dancing and stuff like that, I guess. But yeah, I, we yeah. don't get that drunk. Interesting.
0: No. Smashing a glass is like the closest we get to letting ourselves go.
1: Yeah, that was a thing. My my brother got married. Um, he he's, he got divorced only a few months later, actually. But they did the the smashing. Uh, the, even though they weren't going to have any religious or cultural things because she's not Jewish and they, no, you know, we don't want to be involved in that stuff. That was the one thing they kept was the. And I wonder if it's because it's just this violence he has in him, and he wanted to do the glass smashing. <laughs>
0: well, there is something quite dramatic about it. That yeah. thing when you put God. your heel down
1: yeah it is and speaking of jews i'm making a i'm making a segue here um one of the episodes and things fell apart which i've loved um I've, li- I've listened to five episodes i haven't had got to this last one which i believe is about uh trans rights and stuff i've missed uh missed out on that yeah one.
0: the first yeah. half is about the transition from it's always funny to think of it in terms of the theme as opposed to the story um but i guess it's an easy way to talk about it but in each of the episodes what i'm most interested in is, is is the story, it's like the human story, which just then happens to get into abortion or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, so episode six of What You Haven't Heard Yet is the first half is about when second wave feminism became third wave feminism. Um, and I interview this incredible woman, this has got nothing to do with trans rights, half the show has got nothing to do with trans rights. Um, I interview um, Rebecca Walker, um, who was Alice Walker's daughter, and her oh. father was a, yeah, was a, a, a Jewish um, lawyer called Melvin Leventhal. And they had this crazy custody arrangement once they got divorced. Um, for the first seven years, they were living in the Deep South. They were an interracial couple with a mixed-race child living in the Deep South. As a kind of, As a kind of ideological point, like, Rebecca was a movement child. She was, she was to to carry the, the values of the movement through, you know, in her own body because she was half black and half Jewish and half white and so on. But then what happened was that their parents divorced and um, her parents divorced and, and they came up with this bizarre custody arrangement where she would spend two years with one parent two years with the other like she could have spent middle school with one parent and then high school with the other but no uh, so instead <laughs> she was shunted just oh, wow. very, you know, almost randomly between two exceptionally different lives like with when Whoa. she was in her father's life um it was like jewish suburbia and when she's in her mother's life, it's like, it's like, you know, intellectuals and, and you know, black radicals and hanging around this magazine with Gloria Steinem, And, and so the experience of, of leading these, I, I call the episode Many Different Lives. Um, so the experience of leading all of these many different lives as a, as a child is what it, it was part of the reason why she was inspired to create this new wave of feminism, third wave feminism, which then, you know, um, obviously third-wave feminists fought much more for trans rights than second-wave feminists did. And so so I try and take the the pebble thrown in the pond. Each episode is about a pebble being thrown in a pond. And for this one, I try and take it back, you know, decades before there was any kind of conflict um, t- to do with trans rights and feminism. So, so I was very pleased with that. Like, you know, part, part of the reason why... I wanted to tell origin stories and go back into the deep past as much as possible. Not so deep that people are dead. Like everybody I talk about is alive and talk for themselves in the show. It, it's because it sort of de-emotionalizes it a little bit, or, or not. not it sort of it takes the rage out of it a little bit if you go back to the past. All I could say is that I was very, very conscious to try and make a series that wouldn't pour oil on any fires. Uh, that's what I wanted to do most of all. And I'd say that the series has succeeded to a, to a
1: very large degree. It's fantastic. I've, I've enjoyed every, just it. And some of the things I've actually been, um, and, and I hesitate to say it, but flabbergasted. I've been flabbergasted every now and then. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? Thousand Dolls, the first episode. Um, I went and made a documentary about uh, abortion rights in Argentina. I, I went and followed a woman called the Crazy Baby Lady. Is where people know her. She's like a f- fervent pro-lifer who like throws babies, like plastic babies, at people getting abortions and stuff. So I've been all involved in that for years, and I had no idea that um, what was it? It was that uh, yeah, Frank, Frank, and, yeah, the Schaeffers. Frank and Francis Schaeffer. I uh,
0: know the 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 roots of of. Christian evangelism, being interested, you are know, becoming engaged in in the pro-life is unbelievable. Like it's, it's right. a stunning, <laughs> unexpected story, which is almost entirely unknown.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and, <laughs> and, I mean, and I just found it. I, I found a little, one of the great joys of making the show was going for long hikes in the countryside, just listening to very... Listen to audiobooks I would never normally listen to and I found a tiny hint of the story in one audiobook and then I bought another audiobook which took me a little bit further down the rabbit hole and I just found this extraordinary story that um, that uh, um, violent evangelical anti-abortion and of course you know many you know many deaths occurred there were lots of murders of abortion doctors it all goes back and he will admit it himself to A kid growing up in the Alps in the 1970s, dreaming of making Fellini-type Hollywood films. That was his ambition. He just wanted to make... He wanted to to be an avant-garde director in Hollywood. And his ambition led
1: to to all of that, led to, to doctors being murdered... At that point, it wasn't on the evangelical uh, agenda. It just wasn't something they thought about. Um, and then suddenly he pushed and pushed and still they weren't interested. I don't want to give away too much, I suppose, because people should go and listen to it. Mm-hmm. But does, and, and then suddenly, because feminists turned up and protested against this guy in his small film that no one knew about, that got evangelicals really on board. Does that suggest we're all just big contrarians? <laughs> well, also the media.
0: Like like if if Planned Parenthood had turned up to protest one of, you know, the Schaefer's documentaries and it hadn't been covered by the New York Post, um, you know, it would have been a very different outcome too. Um, The media, the tech companies, but episode five is about how libertarian engineers took over and created the world that we all live in since. And um, yeah, it's... um, uh so I, yeah i I think often and I' write about this and' been publicly shamed as well you know about about how we are unpaid sh- shaming interns for Google and Facebook and Twitter like we're making nothing out of this, and the tech companies are making a fortune you know out of our constant you know waking up in the morning and wondering who we can get um, yeah so uh, yeah so so we are we are um we're being controlled in ways that we're not really, we think we, have, we think we have agency on the internet, but the internet isn't about us. Michael Furtick, a guy I interviewed for, so you've been publicly shamed, said that to me, that the great lie about the internet is that we think it's about us and it's
1: not about us, it's about the tech
0: companies who are making a fortune out of us. Wow.
1: And that's well. That's the point as well. I I got from listening to your series was that I I guess I think of and maybe it's because of the circles I run in. I think of like Twitter and stuff of being like really woke and and liberal and like that's what a lot of friends of mine have gone that way. And I didn't think about how the people who invented the internet were these sort of libertarian techie guys. So are those two just always at war with each other? Well, um, I mean, I know.
0: Well, libertarians don't like, you know social justice causes in general Um, it's more it's not so look so if you go back to like 1987 you've you've got all of these libertarian engineers who are working on the internet in its most nascent form and a situation occurs whereby they have to think about what to do about the free flow of information Um, there was a joke that was um deemed, you know, offensive, and they had to decide, you know, do we ban the joke, do we keep it up? And so this, was for the very first time in history, the people who were designing and creating the internet had to make a decision, like, do we just allow all information to flow unencumbered, or do we try and find some way of of building civility into this machine that we're building? And I don't need to tell you that their answer was, no, fuck civility. (laughs) <laughs> um, the machines must be allowed to flourish. Don't stop machines from doing what machines can be capable of doing. And, you know, and I get it, like, you know, I understand, but what they were doing was setting a time bomb. And the time bomb ended up with the internet full of fake news, um, trolling, offensiveness, Just um, so that was
1: the world that they were creating. Mm-hmm. Are you positive about the, or negative about the future of that kind of thing? Because I guess we're 30 years down the line. I mean, what's 50 or 60 years down the line going to look like? Um,
0: my, my one positive thought is that episode three of Things Fell Apart is, 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 has proven to be the most popular of all the episodes. And it's the most emotional episode. It's about how a televangelist, Tammy Faye Baker, interviewed a gay pastor with AIDS. At the time when Tammy's peer group was so vehemently anti-gay, they the word AIDS. You know, you know, Reagan didn't say the word AIDS in public for four years. um, Wow! From from the beginning of the crisis, yeah, and that heads all the silence equals death sort of signs that people were holding at the time, and it's because. The, um, uh, the evangelicals were just so homophobic and they were so powerful. They were putting pressure on Ronald Reagan. But Tammy Fay interviews this gay pastor with AIDS and Steve Peters. And it's so moving. And people were just, you know, I had so many messages after that episode of people saying that they were crying while driving up the motorway listening and that did make me think a it's it is an amazing story in itself it's very moving hearing it is very moving but i thought another reason why people are so moved is because maybe we're just all so exhausted from this warfare that we've all been living in now for you know seven or eight years i'd say and i think people are desperate for for connection and I, I think that was part of the reason why people were so moved by that episode. So my, so my hope is that, um, you know, there's been a, an incredible amount of progress that we've all lived through and should be feeling very happy about, like much more diversity in the media and so on than it was six or seven years ago. But um, I think the idea of, of people trying to find ways to connect rather than retreat to their corners and, and yell is, is something that I think a lot of people really feel strongly about and so so I have a hope that there's going to be more of that in the future excellent we're back did you get into a flap
1: <laughs> yeah I got into such a state I got into it because I thought I'd given you the wrong link and everything I don't get you know when your face gets all red and like sweat everywhere <laughs> oh man we're but we're here we're back because no, we it's Nick's. It's an exciting interview. I get. I mean, every interview I do is exciting, but this is a very exciting one for me to do. And, and it means I wasn't able to think about where we were. We were talking about Tammy.
0: Yeah, connection.
1: We were talking about, like, I think
0: people felt moved by that episode because they felt like, partly, I think, because they just, people want to connect. You know, we, we want to connect with our neighbours. Where I live up here in, in upstate New York, it's really 50-50, like Trump and and liberal. And on, on a... Um, Personally, I mean, you know, there are, there are tensions, particularly because this area is gentrifying. But in general, you know, people are really nice to each other. You know, one of my Trumpy neighbors will come in and, and um, if there's a heavy snow, and we don't have a snow plow, they'll just come and do it without even, without even like asking us if we want it done. You know, just, the people are nice. And um, yeah, anyway.
1: Do you find yourself, is that something you've learned more as you've gotten older and as a journalist as well? I'm, ju- I'm just thinking about my mm. own experience. Again, this crazy baby lady woman who was horrible mm. to all the people getting uh, trying to get abortions was lovely to me and made me lunch and stuff and took me on the school run. And I, she was like a nice auntie of mine. She hates me right. now because of the stuff I've said about, mm. but is that, have you found that in your experience? Yeah, I think, I think this sort of change for me came when I was writing the psychopath test because I just,
0: it wasn't so much about people being nice. It was more the fact that I think just that realization that we all are flawed, you know, we all have flaws. Having flaws shouldn't feel hierarchical. Like, look at that, fucked up, you know, look at that, you know, it, it should be something that people can connect over. I remember there was that Patrick Marber play, Closer, and the sort of thing, the, the way that they staged it, was that all the, the how do you pronounce it, detritus, detrius? How
1: do you? Um, oh, I don't know. I've only ever seen that word written.
0: Okay. Well, you know, they, the flotsam <laughs> and jetsam of their lives, you know, the furniture, the suitcases, all pile up at the back of the stage. So you're just accumulating baggage as you get older and older. And... And that really hit me when I was writing the psychopath test. It's like, God, we all have hard lives. You know, I was I, you know, our families going through a little bit of a hard time at that time. And um, you know, we, we all have hard lives, we're all flawed, we all have our troubles, we're all trying to just muscle through. We don't really live in a world of incredible heroes and sickening villains. You know, we're all a little bit of both, you know, and um. And that's kind of what I've what I've carried with me ever since. It's and, and I write and it's specifically about what, so you've been publicly shamed. is about, and I think it, it really informs everything that I that I do now.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you find yourself trying not to moralize? <sighs>
0: that's a that's that's a hard word for me because. Um, I mean, I am moralizing. In so you've been publicly shamed, I'm. I'm saying, you know, it's a, it's a moral decision. It's it's moral, It's a moral thought that we should be more patient and curious and empathetic instead of instantly judgmental. So the book isn't. So the book is that book is a bit moralizing. And in fact, I think some people who didn't read it thought I was I'm, I was being like a scold. Um, I was scolding people, and obviously, I—that's <laughs> not what I try and do. I can't even scold. I can't even scold my dog when she hunts my leg. I mean, that's <laughs> how—that's how unscoldy I am.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's been there the whole interview, John. I was going to say, but the dog, no, it hasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's is it do, do people, do you find they misinterpret? And then I think I've seen over the years people tweet you um, examples of, of people who have actually done, unlike in So You've Been Publicly Shamed, where they've done sort of one-off bad things, horrible, horrible things. And they've yeah. said, look at this, John, is this an example of public shaming? And you're like, hang on a minute, this is just a mm-hmm. horrible thing. Well, this is my problem with the term council
0: culture. I, I think the term council culture encompasses, you could say, three very different sets of circumstances. Uh, you, on the one hand, you've got the people that I wrote about and so even publicly shamed, which is you know, private individuals who were disproportionately punished for, for a minor transgression. Then you've got in the middle, you've got public figures like columnists who write you know, agent provocatory type stuff. Um, and then when there's pushback, they say, oh, I'm being cancelled. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got like politicians who sexually assault people. So so you've got like, so I think it's a totally valueless race, cancel culture, when it can incorporate those three different, totally different sets of circumstances, each of which should be considered in its own way. Um, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so I often have got my friend, John Safra, the Australian journalist, says I've become a shaming imam. Like, <laughs> people, people come to me for like, like I'm on top of a hill making <laughs> pronouncements. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. But, but basically when I was writing, say, so You've Been Publicly Shamed, this was before this whole conversation was being had. Um, you know, cancel culture didn't exist as a as a term. Um, I thought, well, what are my rules here? Like, what am I against? And I decided, like, I'm not against satire. I'm not against citizen journalism. I'm not against journalism. I'm not against criticism. So what am I against? And that's when I decided, OK, this is a book about the disproportionate punishment of private individuals whose transgressions weren't that serious. It could have been like a misspeaking in a in a tweet or you know, a joke that comes out worse than the person anticipated. So I decided that would be my thing. Now, And I do have sympathy with the people in the middle, the actual provocateur columnists who get, like, extreme pushback. I I do have sympathy for them, but I also feel that they should be put in a different category. Like, those of us who choose to be public figures should be held to a different set of standards than a private individual. So um, I suppose that's when I sometimes annoy my my kind of centrist friends who who feel, but I remember like you know when I used to write a column for the Guardian, um, like I'd write a column and then the letters page would be full of like I hate John Ronson. <laughs> and then I'd write another column and this sort of slightly toxic thing was happening between yeah. me and the le- and whoever was editing the letters page <laughs> at the Guardian that they were just filling it like I knew people liked the column because I gave talks and they'd be full of people who clearly liked it and. Um, and I, and I hated it, and I and I really don't like Britain's sort of knee, often knee-jerk adversarial approach to kind of everything. I mean, I know things are getting better. The Today programme is much better than, it than I think they used to be in terms of opposition and you know knee-jerk. Everything has to be oppositional. That they don't do that so much anymore. But while I hate it, uh, I don't think it's the same as being disproportionately punished for you know somebody with 170 followers gets their life like torn apart for some bad phraseology in a tweet it's like we should be held to a higher standards so that's so that's why i i um tend to be like really particular about what i'm writing about in that book
1: this was the the woman whose life was ruined uh, when she she wrote a tweet about africa and aids uh we're getting on a flight right
0: yeah she, this is just i mean she's apart from the only story in the book, but she's sure. probably the most um, famous story in the book because she's kind of the ground zero of public shaming. In fact, and I was listening to a podcast the other day called You're Wrong About, um, their, their opinion is that public shaming is a, is a moral panic. Like, like cancel culture doesn't really exist. It's a moral panic. Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. Like, I think a lot of people are, disproportionately worried that they're going to be cancelled when they almost certainly aren't going to be. So I think there's definitely truth to the moral panic argument. But then they said, and part of the reason why there's such a moral panic going on was because of like, me, like John Hudson, um, <laughs> <laughs> and particularly the Justine Sacco story. Um, yeah. And I would say it's true that the Justin Sacco story scared the shit out of people. Like, honestly, the number of times I'm asked to tell this story, I, I feel oh, like yeah. it's, like a, it's like, like a camp, like you're sitting at the campfire. And <laughs> children are <laughs> saying, like, tell me again the story <laughs> of Justin Sacco.
1: She must think you're obsessed with her. Justine, Um, I (laughs) I
0: get irritated when when I hear myself telling the story again and again. But A, I'm asked to tell that particular story a lot and I don't want to be rude. And B, um, it's a perfect story because it's it's ambiguous. It's not easy. There's other stories in my book which are like easy. Like Lindsay Stone, who's the woman who posed in front of the side at Arlington Cemetery. That's easy. Justine's more difficult. So, and for people listening to and now getting frustrated that I'm not actually saying what the tweet was and what the story was, maybe, maybe I should do it. Um, yeah. So she's on her way to Cape Town, tweeting acerbic little tweets. She's only she's got 170 Twitter followers. Like she's, she, she, she's a PR woman for a big media company, but she's not a public figure. Um, anyway, she's at Heathrow. And she's on her way to Africa and she comes up with what she thinks is a sort of self-reflexive joke, mocking her own privilege in a kind of South Park type way. But um, that's not how the joke came over to many, many people. So the joke was going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. So what she was intending to do, she, she told me when I met her two weeks later, was make fun of her own ignorance, like make fun of the American idea of ignorance by doing a kind of grotesque impersonation of it, Uh, which is an honourable liberal comedic tradition, I should say, like Randy Newman does it all the time in his songs, Um, but while she was asleep on the plane, Twitter took control of her life and just dismantled it. And by the time she got off the plane, her life was And she was asleep and oblivious to it all. Like, there was no go-go on that plane. Um, And, yeah, so a hashtag was trending worldwide. Has Justine landed yet? Somebody found out what flight she was on and linked to a flight tracker website. So and people were in bars all over the world. So people were tweeting, I'm in this bar and I really want to go home, but I just can't until Justine Sacco's plane lands because I can't wait, you know, to... To, to see her face, kind of thing. Like, it was hilarious that we all knew something that she didn't, which was that, yes, you know, our life was ruined. Um yes. Dramatic that irony. Felt, yeah, it felt to be like, like torture. Like, in, in my book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, people would talk a lot about, you know, one of the best ways to, like, torture people is to just, you know, leap out at them, you know, fuck up their amygdala. Uh, and you know that's what that's what we were all doing to Justin second when she was on the plane we're all like you're hiding in the shadows waiting to jump out
1: and yell surprise yeah the social exclusion as well her not being in on the joke about her it's it must have been the most horrible thing but i find it so hard to understand how i know we have that urge right because we all have that urge like because we're from some sort of tribe i guess and we all have that urge of just like that guy's screwed up i'm gonna I'm going to shame him. I'm going to yeah. make everyone on my side against him. I have that urge every day. But <laughs> I would then go, oh, well, hang on, this woman. I don't know her. And like, how could these people do this from a place of we're the good guys and we're going to ruin this person's life because of a tweet she sent? It was, I mean, nothing like that had ever happened before.
0: This was the first, you know, one of the, one of the criticisms I got for telling that story was, um, well, she must have known, you know, when you write a tweet, it's like yelling into a megaphone in Times Square. But this was 2013. Like, nothing like this had ever happened before. You shouldn't have known that. There was no reason to know that. There was no logical reason why Justine Sacco could have anticipated what would happen to her while she was asleep on the plane.
1: It's mad. Or well, the megaphone in New York thing, like she wouldn't have had any. No one, people don't, you, just, you don't listen to those people, you just walk away. This is written down. Yeah. And it, and it was because, again,
0: once again, it was because of the media. It was a Gorka journalist, uh, Sam Biddle, who retweeted it to somebody, somebody sent it to him, or he somehow saw it and he retweeted it to his 15,000 followers. And that's how it all. That's how it all
1: began. Another thing from Things Fell Apart, I found every episode, I'm just listening to this, mostly in my car, um, and I'm just going like, this has totally changed how I thought about it. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. So for that to happen, it's remarkable. So I, I really do recommend people listen to the podcast. Um, the, the Scottish-Jewish one, I've always been so against public shaming in all forms, just having read your book, and that's how I felt about it. And mm-hmm. then there's sort of a feeling at the end that public shaming in in, in this one, because somebody, a techie person, had told a, 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 a a joke considered anti-Semitic and people who were, I suppose, the victims of this, they needed to publicly shame in order to get some attention to this. So in that sense, was public shaming like a positive? Um, well, I mean, I would personally say in that particular instance, like it wasn't
0: the most offensive joke in the world. So in that particular instance, I'm like, ah, you know, like I, I, told, <laughs> I like I get it, but it's not like, it's not the most offensive joke in the world. It's a very old, it's the kind of joke it's a kind of you know but it's 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 you know it's about jews and scots people don't want to pay for dinner
1: yeah on crystal
0: nacht no less oh, yeah right <laughs> but you know i've heard that all, you know i love it but it's not like yeah but in general i would say yes i mean there's the um shaming campaigns have done an awful lot of good in in the last few years when i was think, i was thinking about oscars so white you know when you say um and do you remember the Oscars So white campaign? Yeah, um, yeah. and how there was the whole pic- there was a picture of all the Oscar mm. nominees. Was that it Ellen? Young-
1: no, it wasn't the Ellen picture. It was another. No, side. it was it was a different year. Um, it was the it
0: was the dinner. You know, there's like an Oscar lunch, okay. uh, like the day before the Oscars or or something, where all the nominees gather and there's a huge group photograph. And this photograph came out, out of, of like a just a sea of white faces. And and a, a hashtag started trending. Oscar's so white, and it was it was embarrassing and, and for people and and uh, you know and, and for, for very good reason. Like when you look at that picture, it's embarrassing. And when you look at the kind of TV shows that we enjoyed just a couple of years ago, where you know everyone was white, and uh, and then other TV shows that we enjoyed where you know all the interesting women are just killed. <laughs> which is what happens in Boardwalk Empire with one or two exceptions. Which oh, watching. I haven't
1: seen that. You've ruined it for uh, me. <laughs> yeah, they're all,
0: they're all killed. And every time a woman becomes interesting, first she gets, first she takes her clothes off and then she's murdered. Uh, so, um, it's, uh, uh, so you know, so living through this time of social yeah. change where people are much more, you know, aware of this stuff and people are, are much keener to make, you know, to have a diversity of thought um, mm. and diversity... It's great. So you know, I mean, all of this stuff, I'm very happy about. Uh, it, it's just sort of sometimes, you know, when it's used as a weapon on the wrong people, and, and um, or, you know, it's it's not it's, you know, it's it's um, it's not the thing. That, uh,
1: yeah, I don't have to say. Anything.
0: I've, I've explained what I mean, and I.
1: Don't You've explained to finish it. Finish the sentence. You've got to love Steve Buscemi, though. Oh yeah.
0: Um, And I I enjoyed Boardwalk Empire, like we're on the final season now, like this isn't a negative reflection on Boardwalk Empire, but what it is, 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 um, you know, a show that's only a few years old has things in it that wouldn't be acceptable today, and
1: honestly, I like, for good reason yeah um, yeah we're watching Seinfeld at the moment and we it all and it, I do I love it I love every second every second of every moment that George Costanza's on the screen I'm just it's a delight for me but it's also amazing to see how much things have changed we've got Sopranos for the first time ever as well Steve Buscemi's in that as well and I just love him but then the things they're doing are quite quite horrible aren't they yeah
0: suppose, yeah well I mean we we watched the Sopranos like over the pandemic like everybody else and uh, and basically, I think it's just yeah. like
1: the best show ever. Yeah, I'd,
0: I'd say so. What about Breaking Bad? No, I'd say The Sopranos, as much as I ad- adore Breaking Bad. Um, but, but you know, even in The Sopranos, even in The Sopranos, which is the show that has barely dated, I suppose you could say, like, there's a few too many lingering shots of The Badder Bing. Uh, <laughs> 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 there's
1: lots of Badder Bings going on there. Can I ask you about um un- unrelated stuff? But I was really interested listening to conversation you had with Louis Theroux about competitiveness and bitterness and jealousy. And I've recently read some Will Storr books because he's been on the podcast, and he he's another writer and journalist, just like you guys, who who had a huge jealousy problem. He talked about. Oh, who who was he jealous of? Did he name? Well, it was it wasn't so much. He said there was a guy – he wouldn't say. He did an anagram. He said Ron Johnson, so we don't know who he was talking about. <laughs> no, he, 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 his was more about – and you know what? I don't think he can, He would mind me saying this unless I've got in the wrong person because I've read a lot of books recently. But I th- I'm pretty sure it was one of his. I think it was Heretics. And it was uh, – he talked about uh, a girlfriend he had, and he, he used to go out, and then he would come back surreptitiously and check she was still in there without – Uh, um, cheating on him and it took a long Mm. time for him to get past that there's a lot of jealousy um so it was more about women there but I get very very bitter and it's one of those things like with the public shaming where I have to go all right stop it Mm. other people are allowed to have success who aren't you is that quite a writery thing do people get into writing and journalism who who have that (laughs) I'd say it's a it's a young, ambitious
0: writerly thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, what's that? It was that uh, Gore Vidal? Famous. I think it was Gore Vidal. It's, it is not enough to succeed; other people must fail. <laughs> <be> uh, horrible. <laughs> but and I felt that way in my in my twenties and thirties. It's I think yeah. a lot of it's to do with like ambition and capitalism. I was saying to somebody the other day, like um, speaking of podcasts, like the Brooklyn podcast community. Understandably, it's like exceptionally competitive. Like the producers are all, you know, very, very competitive with each other, and everyone's kind of a little bit on edge for the, for those reasons. And I've just made this show with the BBC with an in-house BBC producer, Sarah Shephier, you know, who's who's you know who's so calm. And it's almost like, and I was saying to somebody, it's like she's got tenure, like she's in-house at the BBC. She's like, it's almost like she's got tenure. Like she doesn't need to, she doesn't need to be all uptight about things and. And and it's been such a pleasant experience working with Sarah, you know, partly for that reason. Um, Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so it's not entirely to do with people's fucked up brains. I think it's partly to do with the situation that they're in as well, that certain Mm -hmm. situations force us to be competitive. With me and Louis, I I don't know, I was like, um, I I certainly felt some jealousy for for a while because a little bit like the Pixies must have felt when Nirvana got big, like he sort of leapfrogged. (laughs) kind of rubbed over me but we're talking about the 90s and um you know many years have passed since then and i don't feel that way at all anymore
1: but he does doesn't he he said he still feels like a slight nastiness about it. yeah he I, I was surprised and you know pleased me like, flattering. like, like yeah. <laughs> what's
0: flattering <laughs> um he's it just you know we always think everybody else's life is so much better like he said the reason he still felt a certain sense of you know that's some nastiness towards me, was because I'm doing well in America. But, you know, he doesn't really know what my life's like in America, whether I consider myself doing well or not well and so on. So, you know, it's very much his own his own thoughts, which were leading him to think that way.
1: Well, America's a big deal for him because of his uh, dad, I suppose. And also they get his name wrong, don't they? They say Thoreau. Oh, right. Yeah, maybe. Yes. Yeah, Lewis. Lewis Thoreau. Louis Thoreau. <laughs> yeah, who's that guy? Right.
0: Yeah. I, 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 to be honest, the thing that really stopped me feeling jealous about Louis was when we sort of feared on a different paths. Like I started writing books and I thought, you know what? I'm never going to be as good a documentary presenter as Louis. Like Louis is, ex- I think Louis is like exceptional in the, in the moment. Like, like Louis's in the most skill at being in the moment is, is like unsurpassed. And um, I suppose part of my jealousy in the 90s was thinking, you know, that's something that Louis does like, better than me. And I don't think I could ever do it as well as Louis does it. And then, and then as we sort of veered on different paths. That's when the jealousy, like I thought, you know what, I write books really well. Um, Louis does those documentaries really well. I, I don't need to be fucked up about this. I I matured my way out of that destructive thought spiral. The best thing that came from it was a joke, which I would tell on stage sometimes, which is... uh, that I think I know this. (laughs) Yeah, that me and Louis were like conjoined twins in that for one of us to grow stronger, the other one must die.
1: Um, <laughs> I didn't know that think. one, sorry, that's not the joke I heard. Oh,
0: okay. Oh, no, no, that was my joke, that we're like conjoined twins, in that for one of us to grow stronger, the other one has to die. And, and every time I said it on stage, like, it would get such a big laugh. And, and, and I would start, I'd think to myself, like, you know, I've, told, I've said this too often now. But then I started thinking, but I can't deny the audience this amazing... <laughs> <laughs> so i just kept saying it because i just felt bad like this audience doesn't get the big laugh which i know they would do if they hear it so i just kept saying you've
1: got it. to well i think like, <laughs> we do like as an audience we like a bit of gossip don't we and there's nothing better than when one famous person say, even yeah. even if it's not true or it's just a joke they say something about another famous person that's the best thing ever yeah so, that's, that's really true we like gossip you want to hear de niro like going like oh the thing about pacino yeah tell you why i hate Joe Pesci. <laughs> rub me the wrong way. Always rub me the wrong way there, Joe Pesci. <laughs> oh, right, I should, I should probably let you go, shouldn't I? Because you've got to prepare for another... Th- you've got all these back-to-back, don't you? Uh, only one other today. I'm only doing like... Um, James, only one other. And then I'm not
0: doing anything for January. Yeah, oh, I'm doing good. lovely James in this show, Shame. Um, it's a great show. Which, yeah, it's very good. Um, I, I very much enjoyed his Cat Rosenfield. Do you know Cat Rosenfield? No. I'd check her out. She's really good. Uh, she's a, She used to be a YA author, and she got into a into a kerfuffle um, with other YA authors, uh, and she sort of moved further into quote unquote the kind of heterodox world, the 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 world of you know the kind of stuff that
1: we've just been
0: talking about.
1: Oh, uh, is she sort of the what side is she on? Oh, she well, she's a. Um, how i describe her. You know, she's
0: probably a kind of... I, I worry about giving people terms, but, you know, she's a moderate. She's a moderate. Oh, okay. Uh, and, um, yeah, she, I, I just think she's she's very smart, expresses things in the vague... Like, you should listen to to her and, and you'll see how
1: good she is yeah i can see st- i'm looking at who follows her and there's colin wright and yasmin mohammed who was on the podcast and lots oh john Mattwater who was on this podcast as well oh i know you had john mcwater on yeah
0: and he's he's yeah he's really fascinating <laughs> he's amazing
1: helen pluck rose who's on this podcast william costello all the people who are on this podcast follow her so she might be good to to, to have on that's a great suggestion
0: can i suggest somebody else as well um, please who I just think is is um,
1: really interesting, Katie Herzog. Have you come across Katie? I think I may have even tried to get her on. I'm not sure because I, I send out so many emails over the months. And I'm pretty ah. yes, yes, because she does blocked and reported. I think yes. at one point I emailed to suggest we go on each other's podcast, and I don't think I got a reply.
0: Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> well, they're both
0: in that world, in that sort of sensuous, tetradox world. I, I, I like. I like people from all all the different worlds and thought processes. But, but, but from that centrist world, I, um, I, I really like both of them a lot.
1: I'll send them messages. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll put this out in mid-Jan. And um, it's been brilliant. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you, really. It's a, it's a oh. meet your heroes in a good way kind of thing.
0: Ah, oh, Andrew, that's really kind. Thank you. And, and I, yeah, I heard your John McWhorter one and, and liked it
1: oh. very
0: much. He's very interesting, right? I, very interesting
1: he was it was he he was a thing that I had thinking when I was thinking about you as well It's that when people get interviewed so much you're thinking what can I ask that's different because they've just answered the same question over and over so I tried really hard with John McWater not to talk about the woke stuff at all and just to really go into linguistics and how yeah. language and offence change and I found the way he talks about it it's just he's a tour de force mm, yeah absolutely he, he really yeah. is um yeah that's well it. that's it's it been beautiful thank you Andrew it was a pleasure Oh, it's been so nice. I hope to get you on next time you got something out or whatever, and, you know, we'll we'll speak Mm -hmm. again. And, um, yeah, have a lovely day. And say hi to James from me.
0: Yeah, I will do. I'm going to be talking to him in 22 minutes.
1: Have a good day, John. Lovely to meet you. you. I I said your name because I'm sure it is John, so I've got it. I know (laughs) the anxiety. It's John. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) See you. Bye. Bye. Thanks John for doing that. You're my hero and I can't tell you, everyone, how surreal it was to be sitting there face to face across a computer screen talking to the very man in whose path I hoped to tread. He was everything I had hoped for. They say never meet your heroes and a lot of these people are a bit prickly or difficult in real life. John came in already laughing and smiling and it just set the tone and put me totally at ease he was like oh hello you know like that and I was just like oh okay all right okay he's he's like I hoped and it was so nice remember that you can find Things Fell Apart on the BBC Sounds app and if you're outside of the UK you'll be able to get it on all the normal podcast platforms from the 25th of January trust me it's worth a listen Um, I really like the music from it too it's stuck in my head all the time it's it's just perfect this sort of whimsical piano uh, thing it's it's really nice if you're new to this podcast please do subscribe and get in touch to say hi on andrew gold underscore okay on twitter or instagram follow john of course on his john ronson twitter things and instagram you've got loads of followers and you should follow him as well he's, he's fantastic to follow Um, But yes, I love to hear from new listeners. Sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold or Apple for the bonus episodes, as well as to get early access to the ads-free version of the full podcast. It comes out a few days early, uh, the Wednesday before usually. There's a YouTube page too for the video versions of the podcast, so come subscribe to the On The Edge With Andrew Gold channel. Please review on Apple, CastBox or the Spotify mobile app where you can now give a rating. I had a great Apple review the other week from JSKI94 in the US who gave five stars and wrote... Love this show. Andrew's an excellent interviewer and his guests are always interesting people from all walks of life. If you like Jordan Harbinger, you'll also appreciate Andrew Gold. Keep up the great work, Andrew. Thank you so much for saying so. I imagine you were sort of put onto this from uh, the lovely Jordan Harbinger on whose show I was recently, a guest. And and he's coming on here soon as well. So you'll be able to hear his episode on my, on my podcast. Fascinating, fascinating man. Um, in the coming weeks should be, yes, Jordan Harbinger, the kidnapped podcaster, um, investigative journalist from the Underworld podcast, Sean Williams, to talk about all kinds of crime deal things that he's been investigating. Um, I think young adult writer, Kat Rosenfield, who had a scuffle or an argument with the woke young adult literature crowd. Historian Peter Hughes, who wrote a book about statues with people knocking them down these days and you know what they mean and what it means to knock down statues. And many, many more people all lined up at the moment. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure the order yet, but I'll see you next week.